this morning. I want to welcome you to the Delray Church of Christ and especially the auditorium Bible class this morning as we continue our study in the book of Joshua. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles. We're going to be doing a lot of look at the text of Joshua. So go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to pick up here where we left off last week regarding the uh, assumption of leadership by Joshua there of the uh, nation of Israel. If you remember last week, we actually ended off talking about the commission that uh, Joshua had. And so we're going to pick up here uh, this week. But before we do get going this morning, I want to ask if there's any announcements or anything that uh, needs to be made uh, known to the congregation before we get started. Any updates on the sick or... George, I think y'all had y'all's holiday party this last weekend. Is that correct? How'd it go? Good? Yeah. yeah. It was good. Yes, brother. Yeah, Charles Roten, uh, Charles and Janice uh, visit here quite frequently, uh, and uh, Charles is uh, in the hospital. He had a, uh, it was a heart attack, and I believe uh, the, he's still in the hospital. I don't remember. I, my wife got the update last night. It's Monica's uh, uncle, actually, uh, but please keep uh, him and Janet and their family in their prayers. Anybody else? Yes, Sister Ormay Falk is in the hospital, Baptist East. I think it's only announcements, I believe. I can't remember what room it is. I'm, I'm thinking 158, but that may be wrong. Um, but she is in the hospital, uh, and uh, they are doing several more testing on her. Evidently, there's some fluid built up around her heart. So we need to keep Sister Ormay Falk in our prayers. Uh, Brother Farrell Falk is at home, and from what my understanding is, is he's having a rough go at it right now at home. And so there are a couple of our kids, I think, are trying to take care of them and all, but we do need to make sure we keep them in our prayers. Give them a call, see if there's anything we can do for them. But Sister Orme is in the hospital, and uh, I'm not sure if they actually have a diagnosis yet or not, but, uh, or prognosis on what's going on and what they can treat. Anything else? All right, let's start off class, if you would, with me with a prayer. Please bow. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the life that we have, and God, we're thankful for the time and opportunity we have to gather together as a family here on the first day of the week. Lord, we're thankful for this Bible study period and hour that we can open up your word, study from it, and hopefully gain some, uh, some knowledge and some lessons to help edify and encourage us as Christians even today. Lord, we ask that you be with us through this study, that we will be able to open up your word and study the book of Joshua and be encouraged to, uh, to have courage in our lives so we can conquer all the problems and the, the sin and other things that uh, we deal with on a daily basis. Lord, we are thankful for the avenue of prayer where we can ask for things. And Lord, we ask that you be with those who are sick. We ask you be with those that are in the hospital, be with uh, Charles Roten and be with uh, Orme Falk and be with uh, baby Kylie as she's in the hospital still. Be with all the others that are on our sick list and that are experiencing the difficulties and, uh, of either growing old or just dealing with sickness. And please bless them, encourage them. Lord, may we reach out to them how we can to help them uh, during these times. Lord, we are thankful most of all for Jesus and for his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. We know without that sacrifice that we would have no hope for eternal life. And Lord, we'd have no forgiveness of our sins, and it's through his name that we pray. Amen. As we talked last week in Joshua chapter 1, uh, the beginning there of uh, this book, this wonderful historical book in the Old Testament, looks at really Joshua 
um, taking over for a legend. That's kind of what the theme of our lesson was last week. And as I finish up that lesson this morning, I just want to think about the, the latter part of chapter one there when he really assumes that leadership role and responsibility. I want you to look real quickly with me because I really I thought about just skipping over this and jumping right into chapter two. Uh, which is a great story about Rahab, which most of us know and have heard and, and love uh, hearing about uh, what she did for the, the children of Israel. Obviously, most of us know that story. I thought about just skipping, going ahead and jumping in that. But I, I started realizing that really these last eight verses or so um, of or really about nine verses, I guess, 10 through 18 is uh, lays the groundwork and principle for the authority that Joshua actually shows throughout the rest of the book. And so it, I hated leaving off without going there because you look, the first few, the first nine verses lay the groundwork of God calling him uh, to be the leader. Again, reasserting uh, those things which had already been uh, given and granted earlier on. We see back in the, the times of Moses when Moses actually appointed Joshua to be the leader. And so we see those things reaffirmed here at the opening verses of chapter one. Going on down, obviously, the encouragement uh, the commission, so to speak, of Joshua uh, to go and lead the people, to be strong and courageous, to remind the people that, that if they are strong and courageous, if they follow what God says, verse 9, of course, uh, that God is going to be with them wherever they go. Uh, you know, God's commanded them that before. Remember those things. And then you see in verse 10, really Joshua assuming the command there of the, the nation of Israel. And so what you see with Joshua assuming the command, uh, first and foremost, is you see the commandment he has over over the leaders uh, of the different uh, tribes of Israel. Uh, there in the first few verses, uh, verses uh, 10 and 11, you see Joshua there commanding the officers of the people. Uh, and that, that would be an allusion, obviously, of those who actually have the authority over the different tribes of the people. And you see, start saying the differentiation as you go through these uh, of who he's talking to and what he wants them to do and what he expects of them. In verse 11, it says, pass through the midst of the camp, command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourself for within three days, you are to cross this Jordan to go on to possess the land, which the Lord, your God has given, uh, giving to you to possess. And he then starts devying up there by the Reubenites and the, and the Gadites, the half tribe of Manasseh. Joshua made certain comments there in verse 12. But what you see in verse 10 and 11 is that groundwork there. Joshua realizing as a good commander of any army, a good leader of any people, you've got to first have a, a firm grasp and, and a firm command over those who have leadership positions among the people. And that's what you see here is, is Joshua asserting himself, establishing himself of the leader over all of Israel because he is indeed the leader of over all the tribes and over their leaders. And so he delegates to them, places upon them the responsibility to go and prepare the people to go into this land. Saying, hey, in three days, we're going to be crossing the Jordan. And when we cross the Jordan, obviously that's going into enemy territory. That's going onto that land, which they need to conquer. They've got to um, take over. They've actually got to possess from other people even. And so you see Joshua here uh, asserting his command and his place to lead among the leaders. Uh, verses 12 through 15, I think it's very interesting. 
It is an illusion if you are not familiar with the story necessarily of Moses and, and Israel here as they approach the, the promised land. Uh, verses 12 through 15 uh, really is an assertion of a commandment uh, that is carried over from Moses' days. And if you look, uh, the, uh, the two and a half tribes that are uh, addressed in verses 12 through 15 uh, get into the, the principles, the, the, uh, the responsibilities that these two and a half tribes still have even though they may not be a part of the, the ones who would go across the River Jordan to possess those, those lands. If you look um, with respect to these two tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses actually already gave them property or, or um, land. They divided up the, the land on the, uh, the eastern side of the Jordan River, so to speak, so that they would already possess that land. And so before they would go into the promised land across the Jordan River, going in there to possess the rest of the land of which the other tribes would take possession, uh, Gad, Reuben, and the half, tri- and half of the tribe of Manasseh already was going to possess and already had possessed and had been given, granted, inherited, so to speak, the land uh, that was on that side of the Jordan River. And so Moses hadn't told them, though, I will give you this land. However, you've got to go and help the rest of them possess the land. You, you can't just give up, so to speak, and say, hey, we got our land, we're done, and we're out. And so the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben, and half of the tribe of Manasseh still had an obligation and a responsibility. And that's what you see Joshua really reminding them in verses 12 through 15 of. He says to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but you shall cross before uh, your brothers uh, in battle array all your valiant warriors and shall help them until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he gives you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to your own land and possess that which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And so here's a reminder here of that tribe. It's a commandment really from Moses Joshua reasserting that to, to help remind them and to say, hey, you guys still have an obligation here, Reuben, Gad, half of Manasseh. You can't just give up now and say, hey, we've got our inheritance. Y'all go take care of yourselves. You still have this responsibility toward your brothers to go and help them take their possession, to take their land. And so what you see is Joshua commanding them, carrying that over, obviously going forward as you see and going forth. And really... I think the crux of Joshua's assumption of the commands is really seen here in verses 16 uh, through 18. And obviously, uh, it's not 1 through 18, it's 16 through 18 if you're looking at the PowerPoint slide. Uh, And again, I apologize for not having handouts. If you don't have a handout, you're not missing a handout. I don't have them. Um, I think between the holidays and the family, um, I've about just, uh, I have no time. Um, And so... (laughs) Uh, unfortunately, most of y'all know how that is, so I'm, I'm thankful that y'all have that, that understanding. I hope that that will improve after the holidays is taken out of the equation. I told Monica I'm sick of the holidays already. Uh, just all this preparation. It's so amazing what all you do to prepare for these things. And uh, the shopping and the crowds. And anyways, um, so I apologize you don't have the handouts. Just follow on the screen with me if you would. But uh, verses 16 through 18 really exemplifies... And shows the, the foundation that Joshua has for the entire book and really for his entire life there with respect to his leadership over Israel. Look real quickly, verses 16 through 18. They, now they of course will be an allusion back to who? Well, be really to the most remote, the, the most uh, direct would be the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who he just spoke to. 
Okay, so you have a response from them. I think it's very likely they could also refer back to all the leaders. So you could go back to even that earlier group we spoke about there in verses 10 through 11 where he commanded the officers of the people. That could be the they there. We don't know exactly which they it is. But regardless, they answered Joshua. They spoke up and answered him and said, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all that you command him uh, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. You got to like that kind of response from the people you're leading. You know, you really do. Now, to me, it empowers you as a leader to hear those who you are leading tell that to you, I would think. Because you have this leader standing up and saying, hey, first of all, you all go tell everyone to get ready. We've got to go get prepared. We're getting ready to go across the Jordan. We're getting ready to take the land. You look over here to those two and a half tribes that have already pretty much inherited their land. There's no more conflict or struggle really on that side of the Jordan anymore. And so they kind of already got their land, their parcel of land. They're actually going to get to leave their wives and their children, their livestock behind. And they just got to go help fight still. So you got this group here who, who, who Joshua is reminding, hey, your battle's not over though, guys. You still got to go on with me. You're still obligated and responsible to help your brothers conquer their land and possess their land. So what you see here, I think, is a response from a people that should empower a leader. Can you imagine if you got up in front of a congregation as a Christian and you were a leader, an elder, let's say, and you got up and told the congregation, these are the things that we we need you to do. These are the places that we need to go. These are the things that we need to accomplish. And that congregation responds to you and say, hey, we are with you. We are with you. Your God's my God. We will not forsake you. We will not turn from you. And guess what? If anyone's against you, if anyone's against you, may they die. Be strong and courageous, leader. Imagine the empowering that that would give to a leader. And I think that is phenomenal if you think about it. Joshua here being put in this place by God, assuming the, the responsibility that, that he overtakes from a legacy being Moses... Here finally sees the fruition of what that really could bring about as a leader. Brother Verl. They do. Very good point. Yeah, there is a a realization, I think, there of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh realizing their role. And their role is going to be as following this leader. You tell us where to go, we go. You tell us what to say, we say. You tell us what to do, we will do it. Because we are fully behind you. In realization, I think that's great, though. You're right. They actually lead the battle. If you look there in those verses there... uh, those two and a half tribes are actually going to be the ones who uh, go and, and actually go ahead. It says there in verse 14, you shall cross before your brothers in battle array all your valiant warriors and shall help them. Uh, the idea and concept there is that they are going to be helping lead that battle, lead the charge, so to speak. 
that they are actually going to be there in, in the heat of battle. I think that's a great phrase to use, Burl. Uh, the, the two and a half tribes, although they have what they've been promised, realize there's still yet more to do. And they realize that Joshua is that leader that they are willing to follow in the battle. I think Joshua is empowered, but I think of also the, the, the effect that this would have upon the whole nation as a whole. I mean, imagine that, the unity that you've got there. You've got two and a half tribes who really don't have to fight anymore technically for what they've already got. I mean, that's what most of our mindset is. We're going to fight, fight, fight until we get what we get, right? And once we get what we get, we're done. It's over, done. Wash our hands. Okay, we don't need any more. We don't need any more conflict. We don't need any more battle. No more killing. No more bloodshed, right? Well, that's not the, the mindset of these two and a half tribes. And they, in fact, were uh, happy. They were willing to go forward and keep going, pushing forward in this battle uh, with Joshua as the leader there. Uh, I like the, the idea that in the latter part of verse 18, there is an echoing of the commandment of God. That last phrase there in verse 18, be strong and courageous. It's, it's kind of like it finally sunk in, didn't it? You know, you can't help but think and reflect back upon the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. You know, and what that made of this nation. And we think, well, they didn't have to wander. No, they didn't have to. They could have been faithful, right? That first spy mission, we're going to get into that first espionage kind of situation in the Bible here as we talk about chapter 2. That first one was unsuccessful back in Numbers, wasn't it? <laughs> they came back and those 12, those 12 spies had gone in the land. Ten of the 12 uh, said, hey, there's no way we can do this. No way. And then here you open up and, and Joshua chapter 1 echoes the, the commandment of God to Moses and the people of Israel to be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. That's what God says there and, and reminds Joshua in cha- chapter 1. And then here at the very last verse of chapter 1, verse 18, it's like it finally sunk in. The response of these two and a half tribes, or really it could have been all the people, as I said. The response that these people finally had to God speaking to Joshua, commanding them to be strong and courageous, finally sunk through their thick skulls. And they said, you know what? You're right. And in verse 18, their response to Joshua is, we're with you. Where you go, we go. What you command, we do. Uh, We will obey. If anyone rebels against your command, may they be killed Only be strong and courageous. Why? Because they realize that if you're strong and courageous, you're not afraid. God's going to be with you. And they finally realize that after 40 years of wondering. Now, I would hate to have a 40-year-long lesson. But it worked. And I think that's what you see in the book of Joshua. I'm not saying that they're perfect because we're going to see, especially when it comes to uh, the, the, the... Achan and the proceeds from Jericho and the fact that they get conquered in Ai. You know, the one defeat, by the way, in the whole book of Joshua is because of disobedience. But what you see is a, a nation of people whose hearts have been truly changed, probably. They finally realize that their parents and their grandparents and all their forefathers who rebelled and went against what God wanted were wrong. And there's only one other way to do it, and that's to be strong and courageous. And that's what you see here in their response to Joshua as they begin to get ready for battle. Joshua assuming command, his command, I think, was undergirded, not just by a realization of of the fact that he had to 
to be a part of these leaders, that he was given this commandment or command this from God. He was really given the commission to command from God himself. Uh, he was carrying over some of these commandments and some of this um, uh, great inheritance of, of command from, from Moses. I mean, he carried that over. That tradition of leadership was carried from really one leader to the next. Sometimes you have disconnecting between different leaders, don't we? I mean, we have a disconnect sometimes, and it's almost kind of like you have a lull in le- real true leadership, whether someone's having to, to learn to be a leader because they really hadn't had that experience, you know, in their past. And so you kind of have like a year or two for them to even understand what in the world it means to lead. Uh, you know, you had that lull in leadership. You didn't have that here. It was carried over. Joshua had been learning. He had been experiencing all those years as Moses' understudy, so to speak. So you've got that, that continuity of true leadership. And then here you see the undergirding really of the leadership comes from the realization that God must be obeyed. That without God, you're, you have no hope. But with God, you have all expectation of victory. And they finally got it. And that undergirds, I think, you seeing Joshua as he leads this nation of Israel as we go through the rest of the uh, chapter 1 and then on into chapter 2. Any comments before I move into the next lesson this morning? <clears throat> lesson 3, I, I've titled The Courage to Fulfill a Mission. And, and I, I strategically have thought of that in several different ways uh, with regard to fulfilling a mission. But sometimes, you know, we, I really get, think we get caught in thinking that, well, God's promised something. And so we really don't have to do anything else. It's kind of like God has promised you that he will be with you. And so sometimes in our minds, I'm afraid we may get caught up into thinking, well, God's with us. God's going to make sure everything's good for me. So I'm just going to kind of sit back and take it easy. I'm not really going to do anything because God's going to kind of watch over me. Um, You think back in history, uh, some of the things, and specifically, let's think about Joshua and the nation of Israel. Joshua and Israel was promised, we've seen it in chapter 1, that if they go out into battle, if they are strong, if they are courageous, if they're not afraid, if, if God is with them, it says there that, that he is going to be with them each and every step of their way, that no one will overtake them, that they will have this land, they will possess this land. You think of that wonderful promise. It's kind of like they had heard about it for all these years. You know, you just think nation of Israel all these years since Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. And you're talking a good chunk of time. Multiple generations have been hearing about this promised land. It's kind of like it's been that, this, this story, probably this one of these bedtime stories that you hear when you go to bed at night. And you always hear about how God has said he's going to give us this land. And, you know, it's kind of like you can almost taste it. You can almost think it. You can almost feel that, that this land is ours. God has promised it, so therefore we're going to have it. And then all those years kind of pass, and it kind of makes me wonder, is, is Israel getting it sometimes? When they came from Egypt and they had experienced all of the, the miraculous things that God did to show his power, to show his, his superiority, to show that, that he's supreme, God's supremacy uh, over Pharaoh and over Egypt, over nature itself, you know, those, those plagues that we saw that, that he brought about in the land. I mean, God did all those things to really show the power so that he could show the people who he was and what he was. And the fact that that 
Egypt, who, who really had no belief, firm belief in who the real one true God is, would have a realization that they needed to respect God and let the people go. You see that throughout that, the history and the interaction there uh, before Israel left captivity. And you almost kind of wonder in your mind, did, did Israel just kind of think, hey, God's going to take care of us so we don't have to do anything? You, know, you see they're griping and complaining, right? And it's kind of like they think, hey, we're, we're do this. So because we're do this and because God's promised us this, we don't really have to do anything. It doesn't matter what we do. You know, we're going to get it because God promised it to us. It doesn't matter what we do. And I kind of wonder in my mind, do we get that way sometimes? It has brought about, I believe, a misconstruing of different theology. Uh, when you look at Calvinism, Calvinism is, of course, a, uh, John Calvin uh, brought about, really, it's a, it's a five-principled kind of philosophy with regard to religion. And, and one of those things is pretty much a, a once-saved-always-saved mentality. It's the fact that once that you have uh, experienced the realization that you're one of the saved, and again, this is, this is Calvinism, this is not what it, the Bible speaks about, but they're, they're, the thought process is this. Once you've experienced the saving grace of God, uh, and you're one of the elect, that, that you can't ever lose those things. And it kind of bootstraps on this kind of mentality and this philosophy. It's the fact that, hey, God's promised you eternal life. God's promised you salvation. It doesn't matter what you do, good, bad, or indifferent, you're going to get it because you're do it. You're one of God's elect. And you see the problems that that can really bring about in religious lives. What about in our lives? I want you to kind of put this on the back burner as we go through chapter 2 and think about a few things that we see here in chapter 2 and some of the lessons I really truly believe that Joshua 2 really brings home to us. We're not going to get through it all today, but let's look at least real quickly at the passages of Scriptures and maybe next week we'll have enough time to get into the, to the actual application and the lessons that we can get uh, to help courage bring about in today's world. But, but look real quickly with me at the passages here. You look in, in Joshua chapter 2, and, and really the chronology here of these 24 verses is verses 1 uh, through 2, one, really verse 1 is, is the, the beginning of this mission of these two spies, the focus of this passage of Joshua moves away from Joshua and it goes to the two spies and Rahab uh, and Jericho. And so you see a little bit of transition here uh, with regard to what goes on. But Joshua's preparation for battle, which was going to occur, begins here in chapter 2 with him sending two spies to go to Jericho. Now I think that's a very interesting dynamic and a change. And again, I think it's begging. I kind of gave you all a little bit of a hint as to what I think the principle God is trying to, to show here. And really the principle that, that Joshua, I believe, believed is the fact that it, 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 God promised these things, but we still got to do something. You know, we still have a responsibility. We still have a role. We still have work to do, so to speak. It's not a job, God's just going to snap his finger and all of Jericho falls down to the ground or, or all these men just die suddenly and they just give up their property. Uh, you know, that's, that's not what, what's going to happen. God expects us to take action. And Joshua understood that principle and as a leader was trying to get prepared for the battle. And so he sent out some spies to this mission. I think it's very kind of, kind of neat to look at this because obviously um, with respect respect to uh, Joshua and his uh, involvement here with regard to spy missions, this wasn't his first go-round. 
you know, you kind of like to have a leader who's a little bit of experience. I think it's always a good thing. I mean, obviously, we have some, you know, presidents that have never been, like, you know, in the, in the Army or in any kind of uh, armed services. Uh, and so a lot of times that's kind of thrown up as, oh, hey, can they command this, you know, can they be the commander-in-chief? Because they don't have that experience. They don't have that knowledge or know-how. And, of course, a lot of times they remedy that by, what, surrounding themselves with people who have. And they try to bring that knowledge and that experience to the table so they'll have that when they go out and lead in battle. Well, Joshua didn't have to do that because he himself had been involved in these kind of things before. And in fact, when you see in verse 1, when he sends these two spies to go and to spy out the land, especially Jericho, it says there in verse 1, you can't help but think back to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers 13, of course, would be the first mission uh, that we know of in, in the Bible, at least, talking about kind of going and spying on somebody. So the first uh, Hebrew um, secret intelligence, you know, endeavor, mission, you see there in Numbers chapter 13. Well, here, that same secret intelligence unit evidently is going to send two more to go on the land. And, and this is obviously going to be two different people. Because the first one, of course, was the, the older generation. This would be uh, the Secret Intelligence Agency uh, version 2, 2.0, with, with a new generation, so to speak, of, of individuals who were not involved in the first undercover secret mission to go there and spy out the land. But what you see is Joshua, of course, understood these things. He was not new to the spy game, so to speak. He had been involved before in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 there with regard to that first undercover mission operation there to go into the land and spy it out and to see what was going on. And really, I think it's, it's kind of like you learn. he learned a little bit. And he's applying that knowledge and experience here to the new one. And why do I say that? Well, first of all, I want you to, to, to see... Verse 1, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went, came to the house of a, of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. I, I paused intentionally, not because I wasn't thinking, but intentionally. Secretly. And if you look... And I'm not saying the first one wasn't a secret mission. It wasn't secret to the people of Israel. I believe all the people of Israel knew that there were different individuals chosen from each tribe, right? There was one individual chosen from each tribe of Israel before. That's why there were 12 to go and spy before. Here, Joshua kind of like learns and sees, uh, maybe let's, let's tweak this process a little bit. Let's just send two instead of 12. And the two that I send, I'm going to send in secret. So it's kind of like, shh, let's not tell anybody. It truly becomes what we would kind of think of as some kind of a covert CIA operation here of, of, of Hebrew proportion. And they're going into the land to spy out the land, especially, it says, Jericho. And we see that as probably being the, the, the mission emphasis as being that, that city of Jericho there for them to go. If you come back and you look and see, compare, and we don't have time this morning, compare Numbers 13 and 14 to this, Joshua chapter 2 verse 1. And what you're going to see, the difference between Joshua 2 and Numbers 13 is the secret aspect. It is. Because before those 12 spies went, and I guess it could be debated whether or not all of Israel knew that 12 spies were going into the land. I think it's pretty apparent that there was a lot of talk. They knew what was going on. Moses made it pretty much intentional that Israel knew what, what he was doing. He was sending 12 spies in in Numbers 13. But, and when they came back, that's the important part. I think it's about Numbers 13, 26 or so. You see that when he comes back, they actually give their report in a very public way. Twelve spies, you can imagine, 
get up and they give a report to the millions of Israelites. Telling them what all they saw, heard, tasted, smelled. All those things that their senses were able to see when they went in the undercover operation to Canaan. It was very public. And that very public presentation of their report is what ultimately, if you look, brought about the downfall of Israel. Because that, that public report uh, is what garnered the attention of the people. And they started turning and they started wondering and whining and complaining once again. Uh, that Why did God take us out of Egypt to go in and go to a land where we're going to get destroyed? Because that public report was that they had these huge giants and you had all these, these massive armies that there's no way that, that we could withstand these, these people. That's the public report they saw in Numbers 13. Now, flip over to Joshua 2, and what you see in Joshua 2 is ultimately, first of all, is very much pointed out in verse 1, and this was a secret operation. It's not known here whether or not it was widely known throughout the nation of Israel that Joshua was again sending in some spies to look at the land. You know, obviously you could probably imagine what the little chitter-chatter might be among the, the camps. Oh, here we go again. We're sending in some spies again. Why are we sending in spies again? As a matter of fact, you think about chapter 1, they had just been assured, right? Victory. <laughs> and you kind of think in your mind, well, wait a second. Why is Joshua sending this in? He's been assured victory by God. Why send in spies? Can you imagine that the people might think the same thing? It's a good question. I think as you go on and look in chapter 2 and you, you, you see the response that you see in, in verse 23 and 24 at the end of chapter 2, the report that was given, it's really just a, an operational mission. Joshua is trying to figure out who, who all's there and what they're up against, so to speak. It's not that it's a lack of faith in God bringing about uh, victory. It's more of, let's, let's, let's see what the land holds. Let's see what's there. Let, let's check out this fortified city known as Jericho to see what we're up against and see how we may need to conquer. If you think about it, at this point, we're not over where God tells them how to conquer Jericho yet, are we? Joshua, in his mind, is planning for battle. He's ready to go in there and conquer that city. He doesn't realize that God's going to supernaturally conquer the city, does he? I mean, who would envision at this point in time that all they had to do is march around the city seven times and the walls are going to fall down? <laughs> you know, you don't see that. And so procedurally in our minds, we've got to put ourselves back in Joshua's shoes and realize he as a leader of this country is trying to prepare the men for battle. And so one of those things he needs to do is have eyes and ears wherever he can to see what the enemy is going to be like. And so he sends the two spies there secretly. Verse 23 and 24 tells us, Probably one of the biggest distinguishing factors between this operation and the operation of Numbers chapter 13. What is it? Look at it. Verse 23 and 24. Who did they give the report to when they came back? Gave it to Joshua. They didn't stand up in front of the multitude of Israel. They didn't stand up in front of all the different leaders of Israel and give any kind of an indication as to what they saw or, or what they thought was good or bad or, or evil. This truly became an operational mission from the standpoint of Joshua as the commander-in-chief of that army of Israel to try and figure out what they needed to do. And then they found out the information they needed. We'll get to that later on. But you see the distinguishing difference that I believe Joshua knew. Joshua realized here that there had to be something different done than before. And he did something different, and I believe it was successful because it obviously didn't cause any kind of conflict or uproar or any kind of concerns whatsoever in the camp of Israel. Uh, you see a distinguishing difference here. The target was acquired in this case as well with regard to this mission being accepted in verse 1, and that, that target would have been Jericho. Uh, the book of Joshua reveals some information about Jericho. Of course, Jericho was demolished 
by God, pretty much, through uh, the faithfulness of Israel. And ultimately, uh, you know, we don't know a whole lot of historical facts necessarily of the nation or the, the city of Jericho. There's been some excavations, so archaeology tells us a little bit of things uh, about that city, that what they have uncovered. Uh, it has not been voluminous, and of course, we understand there's some dating issues really with archaeology, and I'm not going to get into that. I'll let Rob and Apologetics Express deal with that more than me. Uh, but obviously, you've got a lot of people that try to cast some scrutiny with respect to the dating uh, of uh, Jericho and other uh, cities mentioned here in Joshua. But really, this book itself, the book of Joshua, tells us some things about Jericho that I think is interesting and intriguing to kind of go ahead and point out at this juncture. Obviously, the city's not really big in the overall scheme of things because it's conquered. So, you know, it's not really coming back to, to uh, be an important place. Uh, with regard to Old Testament or even New Testament history. But uh, with respect to the city, we can see first that the city was probably a sinful city. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm going to equate it with Nineveh or anything like that just necessarily. But if you look in chapter 2, verse 1, obviously uh, the, one of the well-known inhabitants was a, a harlot, a prostitute. Uh, and so obviously it was one of those cities that would have fostered such act- activity. It was known around the city. If you look down in verse 3, uh, the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab. He knew where Rahab was. You know, obviously he knew what she was involved in. Uh, and in fact, there's an allusion in verse 3, the fact that uh, he knew that there was a phrase there, come to you, uh, that could actually mean what we call the biblical, you know, in the biblical sense of coming to you would be the fact that those men, he thought those men had come for sexual favors there. So it, there is a lot of uh, the talk that obviously, and, and knowledge that there was that kind of activity going on in Jericho. Uh, so overall, obviously, it was a city in rebellion against God. God destroyed it. Uh, there are multiple idols that were there. There are multiple things that were put up there for worshiping that would have obviously gone against the one and only true God. And so I would say classified as a sinful city in a very broad sense. Uh, without being able to know a lot of, of technical specifics, it's kind of hard to say. Obviously, I guess every city could probably be classified as a sinful city uh, in my broad you know, classification here with regard to it because there's sinful things that go on. And, uh, so, but it was a city, obviously, here that uh, God had uh, no respect for and that uh, was not going to save. Uh, politically speaking, it was sophisticated because it had a political organization, as I've already alluded to there in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. It alludes there to that there's a king of Jericho. So more than likely, this city had some type of a uh, political organization uh, that would allow it to have some kind of a ruling authority over it. It wasn't ruled by population necessarily, but it sounds like a king. So you had some type of a, a um, hierarchy uh, of the king constro- controlling that. Now, whether that was a king by birth or a king by some other type of appointment or anointment, uh, we don't really know all those facts, but we do see that it was uh, had some kind of organization. It was a well-fortified city that had a, we- a wall that surrounded it. We see in verse 5 of chapter 2, uh, that uh, the uh, there was gates, uh, and uh, so there was uh, they shut gates uh, there of the city, uh, and uh, going down to verse fifteen, which is a description of where Rahab lived, and that fact that she let them down uh, down the wall, and the fact is that there was a big wall, more than likely a double wall, uh, from all excavations of the city area there, they believe it was a double wall where you actually have an inner and an outer wall, and in between the inner and outer walls, there would be some buildings of houses and residences. So the very likely, that's where Rahab would have lived, would be in one of those type of residences between the inner and the outer walls. But it was a well-fortified city. as a city, obviously, that would have been, um, you know, if you looked at it, you would have been uh, very impressed, I think, by its, its fortitude and the fact that it would be uh, fortified. 
Um, I've already mentioned houses probably built in the wall. There was interaction likely with other countries. Chapter 7, verse 21, which we'll get into this later in a later uh, uh, class, uh, dealing with some of the things that were recovered from Jericho. And of course, uh, this is talking about Achan and what he took. And one of the things that he took uh, there in verse 21 was a mantle from Shinar is one of the ways that it's translated in my Bible. Uh, other Bibles translate it other ways. I think there's even an allusion to Babylon, possibly in some versions and translations dealing with what this type of thing was. What that indicates is the fact that there was some interaction with other countries because it would not have been native to Jericho. And in fact, more than likely, there was some kind of trading probably that was set up between Jericho, maybe in other cities as you go further east in the Babylon and in Assyria and those kind of places where you would have had such goods being transported to and from. So there's an allusion there possibly of that. And we also know in chapter 6, verse 2, that Jericho had an army. Uh, so it was somewhat of a, a more well-developed country in its time because it would have had a, an army that would have been there for protection uh, for uh, other, uh, you know, I guess reasons or, or needs with regard to it. But uh, the, uh, the men of war, uh, the idea of uh, Jericho being uh, someone with an army is uh, also talked about there. So mission acquired, of course, being Jericho. Uh, as you see here at the beginning part of chapter 2. As they begin their conquest into um, Canaan and the promised land, Jericho was supposed to be the first target. Now what you see as you go on and read in chapter 2 is that their mission was exposed. Their mission was exposed. There's no idea or indication exactly how it was exposed. And I don't want to get into a little bit of speculation with respect to these things. Uh, and how did the king know that these two spies were there? You know, were they outed because of some internal networking between the different spy organizations? Well, no, probably not. Uh, you know, I don't think it was that, that, uh, that great of a, a spy organization at that point in time. More than likely, it would have been the fact that there's a close proximity. There was also a knowledge as to who Israel was and what they had done. And I think that's pretty incredible when you think about uh, this time and age uh, that occurred there, obviously before the mass communication existed. But you've got a group in Jericho who had full realization of all the things that occurred by the hands of the nation of Israel, more than likely because they understood that they were supported by the God of Israel. And because they were supported by Yahweh, uh, they had these victories time and time again. And the nation of Jericho knew these things. How do I know that? Well, look at later in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. You'll see the interaction that you have there uh, between Rahab and the spies. And Rahab has a clear indication. Here's a prostitute, you know, very much a, a low-level individual in the community, likely in Jericho. But she had a full realization and full knowledge as to what Israel had been doing. And even had a, a really a, a healthy respect and admiration for those things that had been brought about by Israel. In fact, it brought about fear, belief, and I would say ultimately faith in the end uh, there with respect to Rahab because she had this knowledge of those things. So how was the, the mission exposed? Well, geologically, if you look at the map and where they were, they were approximately five miles away from the Jordan River at this point in time and should them. Uh, there in the, uh, the nation over there. And then Jericho is approximately five miles on the other side of the Jordan. So you had about a 10 mile gap there between where Israel wasn't camped. <laughs> you know, you had thousands upon thousands, maybe millions, depending on what numbers you go with, 
uh, of this nation of Israel encamped over here in this fortified city over here. And obviously this fortified city is going to have some type of observation of this large group of people camping over here. You know, so you're probably going to have somewhat of a high alert situation where Jericho is on high alert and Jericho probably stationed individuals to watch this nation of Israel. They knew what they were capable of. They knew what they had done before. And more than likely, they had some indication there that they may be doing something to them in the future. So they wanted to be well prepared. We will pick up here next week.